Welcome to Take Care. This is the podcast that helps you understand the background and habits of change makers. Host Rish Sharma and his guests give you the wisdom to help you learn a little more and get a bit better every episode. Hey everyone, welcome to Take Care. Today's guest is James Hodson, Head of Partnerships at Retention Science, which is empowering brands to deliver relevant information to consumers, an accomplished triathlete, and a veteran of the LA startup scene. Welcome, James. How are you? Hey, Rishi. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Thanks for being on the podcast. We're excited to have you here. So I'd like to start the conversation and give people a little bit of your backstory, kind of what led you to the LA startup scene and being involved in partnerships and sales. Uh, well, we can start early days. I grew up in Seattle, Washington, and so a lot in the late 80s, early 90s, so a lot of good technology up there. So I was always, you know, kind of surrounded by Microsoft and Amazon and was always interested in technology. I really, as a young kid, started, you know, selling things out of my parents' garage on eBay, became a power seller there, which is kind of funny. And so I was just always, I like, I love the internet. I love e-commerce from a very young age and ended up coming to school in LA, went to USC and got a degree in global business, won an entrepreneurship competition, which I actually, depending on the timing of this podcast, I think it was last week uh, that it was the, the new venture seed competition which is a really great Lloyd Greif program that helps guys launch their first company. Got second place, got a little bit of seed funding, started e-commerce wallet company and learned everything I could about just starting a Shopify site, getting an Amazon seller's account and selling through there and learning logistics, sourcing product in China. And that was super fun and interesting to me, but I realized I couldn't do it on my own. And that kind of led me to my next my next job, which was literally joining a father and son team. And uh, they were based on Hermosa Beach. And so after graduation, I could stay in LA, which was great. And my old boss, Rick Long, was like employee, maybe early 90s, definitely under 100 at Nike. So he'd been at Nike and was like old shoe dog, knew everything there was about shoes. And he wanted to start a shoe company. Mm -hmm. Um, So we started a shoe company the three of us down in Hermosa, and we thought, how can we use the power of the internet to crowdsource the designs? And I just loved everything and like the power of tapping into a huge audience online, being able to sell directly to the customer. And you know, from there, that kind of led me to where I'm at now at Retention Science, which is you know building software and technology that supports all these brands. And so we can help kind of take some of the guesswork out of running the business, give them insights that they need, so they can key to Amazon, those kinds of things. So hopefully that's a pretty good backstory on the journey so far. Yeah, that's great. I'd like to just take it back to that seed funding competition you had at USC. What was your pitch and what was the company that you used with the seed funding to create? Well, the pitch was interesting because I was making a minimalist wallet, which for whatever reason, this was 2010, uh, not a lot of people were using those super slim wallets, right? And I was selling it online and I gave every single one of the judges a wallet and it was all guys that were in tech and they loved it. And so I think the combination of like already having a little bit of sales online and having actual product helped me stand out. I think there were 200 companies that were participating in this competition and I ended up getting second to a very fun company called Sporting Sale. Okay. Um, I remember these guys, they made like parachutes for 
skateboarders, which were oh. awesome. So they could start. Yeah. And I was like, this idea is really fun and cool. But yeah, that, that was the, the pitch was all around, hey, bringing a product that wasn't really around using, you know, really high quality material at lower cost, being super efficient and just using, uh, you know, technology supply chain to be quicker, better, faster, stronger than any of the other brands out there. Yeah, that sounds like something definitely that would be up my alley as well. I love the minimalism design. So I'd like to go to the next part you mentioned, which was the company you joined in Hermosa Beach. From knowing you, I know it was called Tweak Footwear, correct? Correct. So what was kind of the mission of that company and kind of what was the differentiator with that company and some lessons you learned from that experience? Yeah, so we launched, I think, 2011 is when the first shoe kind of came out. And the goal was to crowdsource the design. So it was the first time, I think Nike ID was around. If anyone remembers that, you could like make your own colorway of of a shoe. But there was nothing else personalized about shoes at that time that I saw. And maybe there were, but I wasn't familiar with it. And so we were going to give the customer like 100% of the power to design their own shoes. And so we built a Facebook app that would allow people to submit their own designs. And then we would actually go out and make that shoe. And we got all crazy kinds of submissions. I remember the way we, we kind of created the audience was through YouTube. So we tapped into existing YouTube channels that had you know, millions of followers. We worked with great personalities like Rhett and Link. And these guys had just super fans that loved creating product for them. And of course, any YouTuber wants a shoe because at the time, who had, who had shoes? Only like amazing athletes had shoes. Yeah. And so it was a really nice setup. I think we got like 30,000 submissions on our first shoe design, um, it ended up being a very fun mid top that was canvas because Rhett and Link are so like music oriented and they make all these great songs. We put a guitar pick holder on there that was submitted by so many of their fans. And then we just had a lot of fun with building that and, and kind of rinsing and repeating it. And I think we ended up making about 19 different styles of shoe for different YouTubers, different personalities, and literally just like letting the customer dictate and tell the designs they wanted and we would go produce it. It was, it was a lot of fun. That sounds great. And what were some particular lessons maybe you learned from that experience that you're now taking on into your new roles at Retention Science? The first thing is like, wow, there's a lot of power in what the customer has to say. So if you listen to your customer and like we made some very ugly shoes in my opinion, but we would put you know, a, a embroider a wing on a shoe and that would sell 2,000, 6,000, 10,000 pairs. If you listen to your customer, there's a lot of people similar to that one or two people that are giving you that feedback, listen to them and they're telling you, you know, what they want. Um, so I think that was kind of lesson number one. And then I started to realize as we scaled how powerful data was. Like I couldn't just go through 30,000 designs in an afternoon. I couldn't yeah. figure out everyone who ordered six months ago, you know, what's the new shoe that they want. Our demographic ended up being like teenage boys. And so their feet are probably growing. How can I resell them another pair? Yeah. Um, and just like getting sunk in all that data was really kind of tough to navigate, and which is why I like Resize so much. But data is super, super powerful. Yeah. And then probably the last thing that was fun for me, like Rick, my boss had just a fun personality. He really loved to surprise and delight people. And like, he could just make anyone smile. And so just being able to make people smile through business was the next thing I I thought was so fun. An example of that is like every person who submitted a design, we actually put their name on the wrapping paper that's inside the box that the shoes came in. 
So it was really part of them. It was really part of their community. And I just like those little pieces that would just put a smile on someone's face. I loved. And so trying to replicate that now as much as I can. Thank you for breaking that down. I think that's all valuable insights. So another part of your background is your triathlete. <laughs> and that's obviously a very all-encompassing activity, right? You have so many different parts to that. So what yeah. drew you to be a triathlete and kind of how is that training and discipline translated to other parts of your life? I think there's a lot of parallels in sport and business. It kind of comes from after workout. You usually feel better than you did before you started the workout. Mm-hmm. Um, and with triathlon, there's a great community of people that do it. There's also just tremendous challenge aspect that comes to it. So I think the number the one thing that drew me to it was just curiosity. You know, like, how could I possibly do this? Yeah. How far could I go? And today it's more around like, how fast can I go? And so I think it's just curiosity and trying to maybe challenge yourself and reach your full potential is the thing that keeps me interested and keep me trying to like do a little bit better than I did last time. That's great. And then you're, how do you apply that to your current, your current role and past roles? Yeah, it it translates really nicely because I think the things that lead to, to success in any of those aspects are, you know, discipline and consistency. And so if you're doing that on one end, it tends to bleed into the other parts of your life, which is nice. And I think the back to the community, like for probably a two or three year period, there was a group of four of us on the West side here in Los Angeles that Mm -hmm. were training for these things. All four of us had companies all at a little bit different stages. Yeah. Um, But these were like, our bike rides and our training sessions and our runs were like therapy sessions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we would just go out and talk about the challenges we were facing and how we tackle them. It was great. Yeah. And it created some really, really strong friendships in there. And I think maybe the, the last piece is, you know, if you, I always thought I was working really hard yeah. um, and it's just until you get to that next level, you kind of see, nope, you weren't working hard. You have no idea how hard others are working. Yeah. Um, and so it just, if you're thinking you're working hard today, you're not, I promise you, like you could be doing so, so much more. Um, and then trying to just that also affect every part of my other, my, every other aspect of life and hopefully a positive way. That's great. And since you've learned some valuable lessons from that and push yourself to a whole nother level. So I would like to now translate it to the world of sales. You were previously the head of sales at retention science. So I'd like to just ask to you mm-hmm. what, what makes a good salesperson in today's modern world where you're have tons and tons of people pitching you things all the time? Yeah, there is a lot. Getting to that point, everyone jokes, my inbox is all full of salespeople trying to sell me something today. Yeah. What makes a good salesperson? I think there's the tenacity aspect of just being able to go after it. And I think that's still, still important. You still have to do the work. Yeah. There's the kind of naive optimism that you need just to make sure you're like, Hey, this is going to work or we can do this or we can hit that goal, which you, you kind of need that optimism to bounce back a lot. Yeah. I think more and more today, it's, it's really the better salespeople. They tend to care the most. Mm-hmm. They really care. My kind of thought is these are, are people that are not only caring about just the product that they sell, but they care about the industry and they want like, things to get better. In my case, like I want e-commerce in general to get better because I'm a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're the people that are reading industry blogs. They're keeping up with everything outside of their channel and everything that affects the person that they're maybe talking to. So I think you kind of care more today than you'd have in the past because it's yeah. too easy to send emails. It's too easy to get on the phone. 
Um, and it's, you get blocked out most of the time. So it's like, you got to have the tenacity and optimism to keep going, but you got to care. And maybe the other piece of being a good, good salesperson is just having the skin of a rhino. <laughs> I definitely know after seven years of like hundreds, literally hundreds, maybe thousands of people that I respect, high level, C-level folks that I greatly respect have told me, you know, no, or this will never work or whatever, um, or, you know, all sorts of negative things. But at the end of the day, I, I believe in what we're doing and I believe in the, the product and I'm going to bounce back even if Joe Schmode thinks, nope, not for him. Yeah. So, yeah, hopefully that's helpful. Yeah, no, that's that's a really concise way of describing what makes an ideal size salesperson for today's world. So I'd like to just kind of break that down and go a little bit more in depth into that. Let's just say you're working or you're coaching up another sales rep or somebody else newly coming into sales. Like, how would you describe your approach when you're approaching a prospect or you're approaching a potential partnership that you're now in your current role? What is the steps that go into kind of that whole sales cycle? There's a lot and it's very complex, but I think you can simplify a lot of it to if you're not helping, you're not selling. And you, you can hear veterans kind of talk about, are you selling a vitamin? Are you selling actual medicine? But I think if it's someone who's fairly new to sales and they're starting their cold outreach and they're, and they're drafting up their first cold emails, it's like the person on the other end cares zero about you. And so you got to deliver some value or something that's going to help make their life better. So think about, you know, what Sally on the other end wants and how can you actually make her life better before you send that email or have that be you know, thought out before you make the call. I think the approach is also really around being prepared, setting goals for literally every interaction. If you get 10 minutes of someone's time, what's the ideal goal to help them get what they need? Is it figuring out the account? Is it figuring out the company? Who else needs to sign off? You know, how can you make the biggest impact? You know, set those goals for literally every interaction. Mm -hmm. And then I'm super guilty of practicing and just rehearsing as much as I can. You know, I'll, I'll literally write out every single word I'll say on a demo or on a second call. It just because I want to every word, every second of that 30 minute, one hour that you have that person's time is really critical. Yeah. So, and I think a lot of that comes down to being crisp and concise and with sales, you got a really good salespeople kind of back to your earlier point, great questions that help you uncover some of those problems and issues. And so, you know, constantly refining what questions am I going to ask? Okay, what are the five most important questions I should ask? What one should I be prepared if a conversation goes this way or that way? And so I'm always trying to better the questions that I'm asking when I'm on a call. I think for a, a newer salesperson, the way I've been able to, to kind of survive for seven years as a software as a salesperson, it's, I, I just read as much as I can. Uh, my Saturday, Sunday afternoon, I'm generally reading a sales book. Okay. <laughs> like general, and I'm not always taking every tidbit of advice that's in there, but mm -hmm. trying to be well-read around sales, around the industry, reading as much as I can about you know storytelling, psychology, what makes people buy. Those kinds of things are, are just interesting to learn to mm -hmm. me. Yeah. So is there a particular book or, or resource or podcast, some sort of content that like made the most impact that you would recommend the most? Well, some of the early ones made a really big impact. I really like the book Spin Selling. It's not for everybody, but that one made, that was the first like, I guess, breakthrough book I read because it talked about how do you, you know, put a series of questions together or how do you set up a prospect to basically think he 
where she needs the well, your solution by asking the right questions. And they kind of come to the determination on their own. I really like those kinds of things. There's funny sales books that I've read, um, like The Secrets of Power Negotiation, which was written by, a, I think, actually a professor at USC in the 80s. And, okay. And he talks about like simple things that make a, a ton of impact. Like when someone gives you the price of something, whether it's high or low, just like have a, a reaction like it's negative and just be silent and see if they'll lower the price. <laughs> I just I like love it's such a 1980s trick, but yeah. it's just it's funny to me uh, that, that it's real and it works. But for anyone listening, probably my favorite coach up there, a Stanford professor named Maggie Neely. She, okay. does, she does some great stuff on negotiation. Thank you for breaking down some resources. So I'm going to go switch over to, I know retention science, if others don't know, is one of the leaders in uh, AI and personalization for e-commerce brands in terms of delivering emails and messaging. So AI and personalization is a real buzzword in culture and business. What are some of the benefits that people can experience in commerce today from this technology? It's similar to the early days. I think it's still efficiency. I think being really efficient is the advantage of AI. And so depending on how you look at that, I think efficiency and speed is really important to any business, but it's now transitioned a little bit. I'm seeing at least transition a little bit more into keeping businesses in the game or helping them stay competitive because that level of customer expectation from a company is so high because so many great companies are doing just amazing things that the customer expects just a certain level of personalization and handholding that it's really actually very tough to deliver at scale. So ideally, if you use AI and you personalize things, it would lead to a better customer experience. Mm -hmm. So I think the efficiency and customer experience become like the one and two things where and personalization are like helping companies grow and scale. Thank you for breaking that down. So I'd like to take that another step forward. Like in five years or 10 years in the future, where do you see this AI and personalization going in regards to commerce and how we relate to brands? It could go pretty far. You know, you see some interesting things. Like the basis of AI is like discovery for the customer, right? If, if we can serve up something that we know you need or you don't know you need or something that would be interesting to you that you didn't know existed, that's kind of the basis of e-commerce in general, a lot of discovery in there. And so I think in five years, there's going to be a lot more cross between just like your standard website experience of you shopping on your laptop or smartphone. Yeah. And how, how do you combine that experience with something that's in store and physical with all that great data you have on the customer? Like, if you know, James is walking into Nordstrom and the guy brings out three pairs of shoes and he's actually using data to figure out what are the best three possible shoes mm -hmm. for me instead of like, okay, I'm going to bring out the three that I like or the three that I've sold the most this month. That's actually a really interesting way to personalize that in-store experience from data that was maybe online. Yeah, no, absolutely. I can just imagine, you know, being recommended exactly what you're wanting from it. You're already seeing it in some of these. You're um, seeing it. Yeah. Yeah. You're already seeing it in some of these stores where they have a mirror and you're trying it on and then they're recommending that data to you once you go on their website later. So the future is here for sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I love it with like the not only like free samples or discovery of new product, but complimentary product that you're sending to a customer just to get it in their hands. Yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah, definitely. 
a new world for sure. So yeah, I just want to kind of move into some of the final questions. So take care as a podcast. We like to break down the routines, habits, rituals of, you know, people like yourselves. And I just like to kind of break down is do you have any morning routine? Do you have any rituals that you do in the course of the day to make sure that you have that consistency and discipline that you're talking about? I have a lot and it's constantly changing. Right now, my morning routine, because for the past forever, as long as I can remember, it has been wake up, don't think, go get a workout in yeah, and just get the body moving. And that has worked really well for a long time. But I think been slowing down a little bit lately in the routines, you know, actually starting with writing a little bit more um, every okay. day before the actual workout. So get up, you know, I'll write three things down that I'm grateful for that day, two or three affirmations write down my goals. And then usually that's a good start to kind of kick off the morning, mm-hmm. stretch a little bit and then get the workout in. So now instead of rolling out of bed at six, I'm rolling out of bed a little bit like earlier, 5.30, 5.45 most days. Yep. But I, I'm thinking that it's helping and helping me get in the right direction, make sure that I can perform really highly in kind of all areas. Because I know if I don't do those things or there isn't like purpose behind a potential workout or there is an intention mm-hmm. behind uh, you know what I'm doing that day then it's like this is just really really hard work and it's not fun yeah so, <laughs> writing those things down help kind of put everything in perspective that's great and this change what brought about this change in routine for you to make the change instead of rolling out of bed and going straight to the workout to make these changes what drove that so for a while, I had a team of, I think it was 11, there were eight BDRs, so eight people kind of setting meetings and had complete control of my calendar and we sell around the world. So I occasionally would wake up at three o'clock in the morning to have a demo with a company in Copenhagen or wake up at 6am to talk to New York or wake up or stay up late to talk to a company in Australia. And so it's like I had no control over my schedule, literally zero. So when you have no control over your schedule, you need to be stubborn and kind of carve out and start to set boundaries on things that like actually feed your soul so that you can then be a high performer. And so that was the part of the change that kind of brought everything to a head because I was just completely burning out because I wasn't getting the sleep that I needed to give my best on a call, which then is a waste of that person's 30 minutes. And so, you know, carving out this time to work and, you know, be intentional, write some stuff down, get it out of my head, you know, kind of, kind of just put things and organize them a little bit and yeah. then go get a little bit of workout in. That's a good way for me to at least manage the day. That's great. You've seen all the positive results as a result of the change. <laughs> Definitely happier. feel like there's a little bit less chaos, which is good. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. So this is a great segue to the next question. What does personal care mean to you? It's an important one. I got super lucky growing up in Seattle area because I I was able to see a bunch of our neighbors who were at Microsoft in the early days, um, you know, become extremely wealthy. And they just, that didn't equate to happiness. Uh, Like they they weren't the happiest guys. And in fact, maybe even more the opposite. Um, And so you kind of realize like, hey, health is actually the number one most thing is not like just being successful in your job. And so health has always been super, super important because if you're not, you know, achieving the, like what you're capable of from a a career standpoint where you're not like taking care of your mental health, your physical health, you won't be able to perform at the highest level you're capable of in your career, or you won't be as good of a partner in your relationship. And so you got to like put some time and energy into, you know, staying fit, moving the body, eating well. Um, Yeah. 
making sure your, your mind's in a good spot. I, and for that, for me, it's like, I know I need sleep. I know I need like nine hours of sleep, which is maybe embarrassing to admit, but I just fall apart if I don't have it. And so yeah. that, I'm just going to accept that. And that's my thing that I'm working on. Yeah. Well, I think it's always important to know what you need and then just give your body that regardless of whatever it may be, you know? Right. So. Yeah. Whatever those things are, whatever those things that like completely feed your soul that keep you doing it. Yeah. Um, block them off. Like I, for, another one for me is like, I have to go to like a 6 PM yoga class. And I know most of the time, like I'm missing out on maybe finishing a project or writing that one last email. And that's a little bit of a struggle, but I know that the benefit of the long term is that, Hey, now we're seven years into building retention science. Yeah. Um, and we're still doing it and I haven't burned out yet. Yeah. Um, and that's cause I was super stubborn on like leaving the office at, 5.30 to go make this one silly yoga class. Yeah. It's important to know your limits and, <laughs> and what's going to drive your success. So thanks for sharing that. So two questions left. What is one common myth or something that you'd like to debunk either in your profession or, you know, your field or anything else? Hmm. Well, I actually tend to believe that there's a lot of negative perception of salespeople in general. Mm -hmm. um, you like you say use car salesmen and everyone thinks negative things. Yeah. But I actually believe like good salespeople, they're actually some of the best humans on the planet. Okay. Uh, I think if you're a good salesperson, you probably have really high morals and you really have, you probably have really high ethics and you probably have a ton of empathy, especially the ones who've been around for a long time, because there's no way you'd stick around if you didn't actually deliver on the programs you put together. And so those salespeople that have been around for a long time, they've actually created really strong bonds with their customers. They've actually helped the, their customers a ton. Um, and so I, I actually think salespeople are actually awesome. And it's one of my like pet peeves of salespeople don't like own being a salesperson. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you hear, oh, you're being salesy. I'm like, yep, uh, I'll own that. Like I'm telling you stories. I'm going to be the freaking best at being salesy. I believe in my product and I know that can I get criticized for being, you know, stubborn on certain parts or being just like unforgiving on my time on pairing, but that just means my function's important and I am going to do this the best I can and put together this program the best that I can. That's great. So final question, if you were to host a dinner and you could have any guests, three other guests, from dead or alive, who would be in that dinner party and why would you invite them? Oh man, three guests. I think my mom gets an invite because she cooked yeah. a lot of meals for me, so I get to make her dinner. Yeah. I would probably, let me see, who would be really interesting? You know what? I would probably take Oprah as well. That'd yep. be a fun one for my mom to meet. Mm -hmm. um, and I think. Robin Williams would actually be another hilarious guest. That would be, that'd be a pretty fun dinner. Yeah. Yeah. We would make it five, five people total. So you could come. Yeah. That'd be great. That'd be great. <laughs> Definitely. would love to be a part of that. So thanks again for being on the podcast. We really appreciate you having here. I think the audience learned a ton. Do you just let the listeners know where they can connect with you online or check out anything you're working on? Yeah. I'm pretty easy to find most of my, uh, Email and social is, is James Hodson. So Instagram, James Hodson, email james at hodson.com. You can find me with a quick Google. All right. Sounds good. And uh, yeah, thank you. Rishi, this was a ton of fun. Thank you for having me.